Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to die on the cross in our place. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that you took on flesh. Lord, and you didn't just come to save us and rescue us, but you also came to make war against our enemy, against Satan's sin and death. Lord, in your decisive victory over them, we can praise you. We can rejoice in the salvation that you have accomplished. And even now we can rejoice knowing that you are coming back to make all things new. And so, Lord Jesus, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and destroy Satan's sin and death forever. Come and make all things new. Come and restore creation and consummate your kingdom. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would make yourself known to us. Lord, as we read Nahum and as we see how the destruction of Nineveh is described, Lord, that in a sense it would provide us comfort knowing that you would restore your people and that there's not a single enemy you cannot defeat. But Lord, on the other hand, I pray that it will devastate us knowing that we were your enemies or some people are your enemies and you stand against them and your judgment might be slow and coming, but when it comes, it is swift and overwhelming. And Lord, I pray that after this, that we would look to you, that we would fall at, your mer- at the feet of your mercy and your grace, that we would look to Christ and behold the King who has saved us, who died for us, So come, Lord Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, stir our hearts, stir our affections, and make yourself known to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Uh, Welcome. Uh, A couple announcements that I do have before we get into the Word. Mark your calendar uh, for August 22nd is our next member gathering, and that's going to be at 6 o'clock. And if you're a covenant member, I can't make it mandatory, but it's basically mandatory. So please come, uh, show up. Uh, It's a time for us to reflect uh, on what the Lord is doing in our church, talk about uh, the upcoming fall season, and also to celebrate as we introduce new covenant members, as we talk about some of the needs in our church, uh, talk about a little bit of some of the the vision. And so it's a wonderful time for us to come together um, as a church family. And then also mark your calendar. Uh, for August 25th, Wednesday, we're starting one of our first core classes, uh, The Christian Story, as we kind of go an overview of Scripture and really talk about the real story of the Bible, and that's going to be uh, August 25th. You can sign up either through the app, just click on Groups, and you'll find uh, the core classes there, or you can go to our website um, under um, Discipleship Training, and you'll find the core classes over there as well, and childcare will be provided, um, but we need you to sign up to know how many books to print. But if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Nahum, Nahum uh, chapter 2, as we're continuing our series through the book of Nahum. And so we said that Nahum is both a book of comfort and a book of devastation. And so my hope for us in this series is as we read the text, that we would find comfort um, in the text, knowing that evil will not prevail, but that God is going to repay evil, and he's going to take every wrong in the world, and he's going to make it right. And that should provide us comfort as believers. 
But then also on the other hand, as we read about the devastation of the text, as we read about the reality and the severity of God's judgment, that in a sense, it should devastate us. And what it does, it should force ourselves to throw ourselves at the mercy of God as we look to Jesus Christ. Now, last week, uh, Nahum decreed that God would completely destroy Nineveh and that he would redeem the people of God. And again, it is both devastating that God will completely destroy Nineveh, but then it's also comforting that he is going to redeem his people. And so we read in, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, where the people of God are ordered to rejoice and to celebrate your festivals and to fulfill your vows because the Lord is going to redeem you. And that's the same for us. The Lord is going to redeem us when he comes back and make all things new. And we're commanded to celebrate. We're commanded to celebrate our festivals, to fulfill our vows that we've made to the Lord, to walk in obedience. And so as we get to the second chapter in Nahum, he gives us, uh, he, he gives us how the destruction is going to occur, how the Lord is going to destroy Nineveh. Now, for many years, the Assyrian Empire has conquered nations, and as they've conquered nations, they have scattered the people all over the kingdom. And what we're going to see in the text is the Lord is going to give them their own medicine. The ones who have scattered, everyone, is now going to be scattered by the Babylonians. And so the prophet gives us a full portrait of this punishment. And so in our text, we're going to see the destruction described, how God is going to do it. And in our text, my hope is that we would learn from the text and apply some truths to our text where we find comfort in the text and also be devastated by this text and take some of the warning serious. So let's look at um, Nahum chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength, for the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. So when we look at verse 1, the one who scatters, uh, it could be either a reference to God or a reference to the Babylonians. I think it might refer to God who is behind the earthly kingdom that's going to make war against the Assyrians, namely the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are determined to break the yoke of the Assyrians off their neck and to completely destroy the Assyrians by giving them their own medicine, by conquering them and deporting them, scattering them all over the kingdom. And as a result, the inhabitants of the city will disperse out of the city. And so God gives Nineveh a word of warning saying the enemy is coming quickly to attack them. And he gives them a series of commands that prepares the people of Nineveh for the enemy that is coming. He says, man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all, summon all your strength. And so this language indicates that a siege is coming rapidly towards the city. In other words, the atmosphere tense nerves are strained stress increasing hearts are pounding courage is teetering and is on the brink of collapse all of the people of Nineveh are summoned for ready position to defend the city that is going to be destroyed but notice verse 1 and verse 2 
as God gives a warning to the destruction of Nineveh, he also gives a promise to his people. Look at verse 2. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob, yes, the majesty of Israel, though ravages have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. So I think here's one of the very first truths we can learn and, and that really find comfort in this, this truth if you're taking notes is this. It seems like in the text, when you look at verse 1 and verse 2, that God's justice against his enemies parallels his restoration of his people. Another way of looking at it is, is this. As God takes down Nineveh, he restores his people, Judah. So in his judgment... He rightfully condemns, but he also restores. So the, the judgment of God parallels the restoration of God's people. As he's judging and punishing his enemies, he's also restoring his, his people. And, and so verse 2 not only comforts us the promise of restoration, but it also further justifies the impending destruction of Assyria. So why is the Lord going to destroy Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire? Because the way they've treated God's people. And so not only is God going to punish his enemies in doing so, he's going to restore his people and the fortunes of his people. In other words, what that teaches us, that God never forgets his people, no matter what they have done wrong. His eternal love for his people are never broken. And I think this is one of the stories we see throughout the Old Testament. Like, like why were enemies going against God's people? Because they were continually unfaithful to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? The Lord was faithful to his people. The Lord was patient with his people, punishing his people because of their sins. And yet he never completely destroyed them. He never completely abandoned them. And even in their unfaithfulness, the Lord remained faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says this, If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, even in our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. So does your faithfulness or unfaithfulness determine God's faithfulness? No. God remains faithful regardless of whether you are unfaithful. And how did the people of God in the Old Testament act? Continually unfaithful. And how did the Lord respond? He was continually faithful towards them. And even though he punished them for their sins and he handed him over to their enemies, he never abandoned them. And so God is faithful to his people because he is faithful in keeping his promises. Think about the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise that God made to Isaac and God made to, to Jacob. In that promise, he said, even if your people, in a sense, remain unfaithful, even if you violate my covenant, I will bear the brunt of that violation. And if you think about through, throughout the story of Scripture, who are the beneficiaries of these promises? The promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's us, those who are in Christ. Because Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says this, Now, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed, heirs to the promise. So the very beneficiary of the promise that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, we're heirs to. Why? Because we belong to Jesus Christ. 
And since God is faithful to his word of his promises to his people, we can be assured of God's faithfulness and we can find comfort and rest in the promises of God knowing that the Lord is faithful. Look at how Nahum utters a description of the oncoming invaders in verse 3. It says this, The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its walls. The protective shield is set in place. Now, it's very important for us to notice that as we read the text, the text is describing as if the event has already taken place or is in the process of taking place. The event has not taken place yet. The Babylonians have not invaded Assyria yet, and it's easy for us to get the impression. We read it and we're thinking, oh, it's happening right now. As Nahum is, is writing it, as he's, what he is seeing, he's describing what he's seeing, but no, it hasn't taken place it's simply the lord describing of what is going to happen and he describes these invaders or they are well equipped they're trained they're organized they have a strategic plan to to attack against the city that they have all their equipment that that are ready they have red shields scarlet battle attire first class chariots and spears and they prepare to take down nineveh Read about this scene. It's crazy. It begins on the outskirts and it rapidly moves and advances into the city wall. You read phrases like the chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around the plaza like lightning. And so really what Nahum is describing is kind of this swift, overwhelming siege. As even though the Ninevites were warned about it, it is so overwhelming, it's moving so fast, they have no hope in it whatsoever. And I think there is a truth that's not going to be comforting, but rather devastating that we can learn from our text if you're taking notes, is this. Is that judgment may seem a long time from arriving. In other words, it may seem like it's never coming. Everybody is talking about it. Generations go, generations move on, and yet there's no judgment. But when it comes, it is swift and overwhelming. Think about this. How long have the Ninevites been warned about judgment that is coming? A hundred years ago, before Nahum wrote this book, Jonah warned them. And even though they repented for a little bit, they kind of said, eh, it doesn't seem like judgment is coming. Eh, we're good to go. And as Nahum is describing the judgment that is coming, all you can read in our text is how swift and overwhelming it is. And what we can learn is God will not be mocked. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will destroy his enemies and he will restore his people. And when he does, it will be swift and it will be overwhelming and you have no chance to survive it. Look at verse 6 as the weakness of Nineveh is exposed. Verse 6 says this, The river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. 
She is carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts, mouth, knees tremble, inside churns, and every face grows pale. Now, Nineveh, is shown to be weak in an area where they thought they were the strongest. So the city of Nineveh was famous for its dams. They controlled the river through building dams that controlled the water that would go into the city and also around the city that would protect the city from invaders. And so their water system of controlling the water was supposed to be their greatest strength that made the city almost impossible to breach. And what Nahum is saying is the enemies, these invaders, before they take siege on the city, are controlling the water system, and they're actually turning the water system against them. And as they are attacking the city, the city will be flooded with this overwhelming river that comes rushing through the city. But it also will be flooded by invaders that are penetrating into the city. And it will lead to the collapse of the city walls that leads the city to be defenseless. And then he says this in verse 6. And the palace erodes away. And it's almost this, this, this powerful imagery that communicates the profound sense of, of, of the very monarchy of of Assyria is gone. The king has nowhere to go. The king has no more throne, no place to rule. Assyria is done. And I think what we can learn is that no matter how powerful kings and kingdoms are, no matter how powerful rulers and authorities and nations become, they eventually will come to an end. No one will reign forever except the Lord. And this is the imagery that Nahum is showing us. Because at that time, Assyria was world power. They dominated and conquered everybody. And here he's giving us a picture of how the city is overwhelmed by a flood. And the very palace, the very imagery that kind of communicated power and authority erodes away as if it is nothing. In, in verse 7 and verses 8, the prophet Nahum describes the city in two interesting ways. In verse 7, he says, beauty is stripped and carried away. And some of your translation says, or a mistress is stripped. In other words, the beauty, the luxury, the wealth of Nineveh is completely destroyed. She is humiliated and mourning her loss. And then the second imagery is Nineveh has been like, in verse 8, Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her very first day. In other words, the city was this wonderful pool, and now she's being drained. Everyone is escaping the city, fleeing for their own lives. The fullness of the city is turned towards emptiness as all the inhabitants are running away, being scattered, not even turning back. And this is why he says, stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back because people are fleeing to save their very own lives. The city that was full, the city that was prosperous, is now a city that is empty in desolation. 
each person desperate to save their own lives. In verse 9, look at verse 9, it says this, Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure, an abundance of every precious thing. In other words, Nineveh was, was known for its wealth and for its luxuries. They demanded tribute from every king and every kingdom they have conquered, and they've collected all this wealth and all the treasure from all the ancient Near East kingdoms. And what happened to that treasure? It was taken away. It was fleeting. And I think another truth we can learn is this, is that the riches of this world can be taken away by anybody. But true riches cannot be plundered by anybody. And Nineveh had an opportunity to, to receive these true riches. When the prophet Jonah came to them and said, repent, and for a moment as if they have had that true riches, but they got distracted by their idols, by their wealth, by their luxuries, and abandoned their true riches and chased after these things. And what's happening? The very things that they were chasing after was taken away from them. And now they're bearing the full weight of their sins before God. Here's a, 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 the third truth we can learn if you're taking notes from this text is that sinners and sinful nations will be judged by God. Sinners and sinful nations will be judged by God. Like, there's no escaping it. There's no escaping judgment. You may run, but you'll never escape it. You may deny God, but you'll certainly face his judgment. And this is what we see in Nineveh. Judgment is coming. What are they doing? They're running from it. And yet there's no escaping of it. And look at verse 10. Look at the, the climax of this destruction. It says this, desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, inside churns, every face grows pale. Now, now the, the, the three words, desolation, decimation, devastation, two of those words, the root meaning of those words is to empty. And the third term means to destroy. So in other words, when he uses these three words in, in a very poetic way, he says that everything is being emptied and destroyed. And the effects of this scene is that hearts are melting, knees are trembling, insides are churning, and every face grows pale. It's absolute devastating, this scene. Now, it's easy for us to look at the text and say, you know, this scene is kind of in isolation to the book of Nahum. But if you really think about it, this is how the prophets throughout Scripture is describing the day of the Lord. Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Nations wreath in horror before them, all faces turn pale. Isaiah 13, verse 6 to 9 says this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hand will become weak, and every man will lose heart. They will be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and to destroy 
its sinners. And so not only was Isaiah describing the destruction of Babylon, Nahum describing the destruction of Nineveh, but really what they also was describing was the day of the Lord and how the world will react. All our strength will fade. Pale, insides churn. So, so let's stop here and just think for a moment. I know Nahum is a difficult book because I'm saying it's a book of comfort and a book of devastation. And as we read about the devastation, which it seems like Nahum is full, the question that we've got to ask ourselves is how can such devastation be good news for the people of God? So, so for example, we read the book of Revelation. Anybody love that book? No. Because half the time we can't understand it, and it's devastating. And yet, when you think about it, when, when John wrote that book, who did he write it to? He wrote it to the early church that were being persecuted. John himself was exiled onto the island of Patmos. He receives this vision, and he, and he writes this vision in the sense of to encourage the believers. And you're like, well, how can a book like Revelation, who describes the devastation and the coming of the Lord, be encouraging and good news to the people of God? And in a sense, it should be good news to the people of God. Like for many of us, we read the book of Nahum, and we just, in the text, all we see is just this cruel and cold-hearted text. But when you actually realize the devastation that the Assyrians caused, the many people they have brutally oppressed, all the war crimes they have committed, all the injustices, and now finally they are receiving divine justice. The justice of God becomes good news because it reminds us that the guilty will not be unpunished, that God is going to take every wrong in this world and make it right. And every one of us possesses a sense of justice, even though it's been distorted by sin. Does anybody love watching injustice? Well, what happens when you see something that is unfair, when you see an injustice being committed? It stirs up in us this anger. And even though our justice and our view of justice is distorted by sin, like, like pay attention to that disclaimer. Like your view of justice is not perfect. It's distorted by sin. Yet we have the sense of justice inside of us. Why? Because we've been made in the image and the likeness of God. And so we hate injustice. And we love to see justice that occurs. And when we declare that God is just, which he is, we affirm that he is eternally right to exercise justice on humans in accordance with his own character and standard, since there is no greater standard for justice than God himself. The Lord declared to Moses in Exodus 20 verse 5 that he will punish the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And even though Assyria had mocked God, nevertheless, it is God who determines the fate of Assyria and its allies. 
God will repay people for their sins. God will hold the nations accountable. God will hold the rulers accountable to their policies and their practices. And here is why the justice of God is such good news. Because when we see evil dictators, when we see corrupt governments, when we see corrupt policies, it stirs up in us this anger. And yet what it reminds us of is that God is going to hold them accountable. Every president that has been elected, you know what? The Lord will hold them accountable. If you disagree with the direction of the country, the Lord will hold them accountable. That's good news for us. That means we don't have to toss and turn and in our anger watch the news and wondering when the world is going to happen. The Lord is going to hold them accountable. Every ruler, every king, every government, every policy, every injustice, the Lord is going to hold them accountable. He is going to judge the sinner and the sinful nation. And it is devastating news, but it's also comforting news for the people of God. And so Nineveh is like a hollow tree. It might stand tall, but it will be easily cut down. The Assyrian Empire was a powerful nation on the outside, and yet beneath the surface, it was weak and deteriorating. And in verses 11 to 12, uh, Nahum, uh, the prophet, even taunts Nineveh. He says this in verse 11, Where is the lion's lair? or the feeding ground of the young lions, where the lions and lioness prowl and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away. The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its den with the kill and its layers with mauled prey. And, and so the imagery of the lion is mighty and fearless. And Nahum says, yeah, where is that powerful lion? Nowhere to be found. And the reason why Nahum uses this imagery is, is, is pointed because the lions to the Assyrians was a symbol of kingship. They collected lions because it was a prominent belief that their kings are compared to mighty lions that rule the earth, that roam the earth, that destroys and kills whatever they want and fill their dens with the prey. And Nahum says, Where are they? They're nowhere to be found. The lion is gone. Their lair is empty. In other words, the Assyrian king is destroyed. His palace has eroded away. There will be nothing left of this kingdom. And in verse 13, last verse, and then we'll talk about application. He says this, Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up and smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. I just want us to focus on the very first verse, part of verse 13. The Lord of armies says this, Beware, I am against you. Like, it's one thing to have human enemies. It's another thing that the Lord, the Lord of armies, the Almighty God, 
is against you. If you have human enemies, there's a hope for survival. But if the Lord of armies is against you, there's no hope for survival. And by the Lord saying this, he is telling the Assyrians, you're done. You will be completely destroyed. And again, this is good news for the people of God who've been brutally oppressed by the Assyrians that the Lord stands against them. And it's devastating news for the enemy of God. Now, now, let's talk about application here. Obviously, this is not the funnest text. I'm sure you're, you're glad you came. But, but let's apply this to our lives here. Like, here's one application that I really think we can see as the destruction is described and how the Lord is going to destroy Nineveh. As we see, it's swift, it's overwhelming, it's imminent. There's no hope for them. Like, like what can we apply to our lives here? And I think this is this truth. And I don't like this sentence. I was trying to come up with a better sentence, so just be, um, be gracious towards me. But, but, but here's the, sen- the little short sentence. Here's our application. There is no enemy the Lord cannot defeat. This is your application. This is your truth I want you to hold on. There is no enemy the Lord cannot defeat. Or another way of looking at it, the Lord is going to defeat every single enemy. It's, it's guaranteed. Now, when we think about this application for our lives, in a sense, this is fantastic news. This is wonderful news. Because even though the people of God in the Scripture have the Assyrians as their enemy, Really, the people of God throughout Scripture had one common enemy. And the reason why this is good news, that there is an enemy that the Lord, there's no enemy the Lord cannot defeat, is because there is an enemy that's more powerful than any king, any ruler, and any nation. An enemy that lives in the shadows. An enemy that appears to be light. And as that enemy infiltrates, with it comes death and destruction. And it's almost as this enemy appears to be this triune form, Satan, sin, and death. And it's an enemy that has been waging war against God's people from the very beginning of the Bible. An enemy that no man could ever defeat. An enemy that seemed all-powerful, impossible to be overcome. And yet what we're learning in Scripture is there is no enemy that stands a chance against the Lord. And when you think about the life of Jesus, when you think about Jesus in the incarnation taking on flesh, it's more than just Jesus God visiting us and making himself known to us and rescuing us. But what really was going on behind the scenes is that Jesus came and came on a war mission to wage war against this enemy. Like think about the life of Jesus. How did Jesus' ministry begin? After his baptism, he was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit led him into the wilderness. What was he doing? He was going after Satan on his own home turf. And by resisting the temptation of Satan and sin, he blew a decisive defeat over Satan. 
And then after he gets out of the wilderness, what is he doing? Opening up the eyes of the blind. Opening up the ears of the deaf. The lame are walking. He's undoing the destruction of sin. And when Jesus stares into this blank, this empty, this tomb that is black and his friend lives inside of it, was buried in it, he says, Lazarus, get up. And as the dead is being raised, death's grip on humanity is slowly but surely being loosened. And then above all, when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He defeated sin. And death finally lost its grip when the angel stood before the women and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. And what we see in the life of Jesus is that step by step, blow by blow, Jesus was decisively rolling back the effects of the fall. The rightful king of this world has come. And all that stood in the way of the establishment of this kingdom, sin, death, and Satan, was decisively overcome. And those who submit to the king, those who look to the Savior King in faith, who lives under the rule and reign of the king, are brought into his kingdom. As the Bible describes, we've been transferred from darkness into marvelous light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And then by faith, we we look to him. We surrender to him. We walk in obedience and joyfully submit to his rule in our lives, for, for he is our savior and he is our king. And it's fantastic news that Satan, sin, and death has no chance against our king. Our king has already defeated them, but our king is coming back to destroy them once and for all. It's good news, but it's also horrendous news. And here's the horrendous part. When you worship creation rather than the creator, when you refuse to submit to God and you live in rebellion or even indifference towards God, you are his enemy and God stands against you. And here's what's true for all of us. Here's what's true for all of us is this. We all at one point were an enemy of God. God stood against us. And we had no fighting chance. And here's the reality. No one or no thing can save you from God. Only God can save you from God. And he did through Jesus Christ. And this is why we need Jesus. Because we were enemies of God. God did stand against us. We had no fighting chance. And this is why we needed God himself, our Savior King, to come and save us from the wrath of God, save us from the judgment of God, the condemnation that came from God that we rightfully deserved. 
And this is why we look to Christ. And so I think this text, again, should be good news and should also serve as a warning. Like, are you living? Are you looking to Christ and faith? Are you living under the rule and reign of the king? Are you submitting yourself to the rule of the king? Like, like take warning here. Judgment is coming. And the one who's bringing judgment is just. There's no way of fooling him. It is swift. It is overwhelming. It is devastating. And there's no way escaping it apart from Jesus Christ. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how ordered your life is. You cannot escape the judgment of God. It is only through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read this text, Lord, I have to confess this, the devastation of it as we see how swift and overwhelming your destruction comes, as we see how, how the nations, their hearts are pounding, their faces are turning pale, their strengths have left them, and all they can say is, woe is me. For your judgment is coming. Lord, can we, in a, in a sense, even for the, us who are in Christ, can we, in a sense, feel that devastation? so that we may cling to you, Lord Jesus? Can you help us to repent of our sins? Can you help us to stop bowing down to our idols, the idol of self, the idol of comfort, the idol of wealth, knowing that these riches are fleeing, they'll be taken away, but the only true riches is you that can never be taken away. Can we cling to you? Can you help us cling to you? Help us in faith look to you and joyfully submit to you as we live under your rule and reign. Lord, help us to take comfort knowing that our enemy has been defeated. Help us to take comfort knowing that one day our enemy will be destroyed once and for all. And Lord, help us to take warning of the real devastation of your judgment. As we continue to pray, I, I really don't want to scare you. I don't think fear is a very good motivator. At least it's not lasting. But I want to give all of us opportunity to look at our lives. Are we living under the rule and reign of our king? Are we clinging to the cross? Believing and the saving work he's accomplished for us? Or are we trying to save ourselves? Or maybe thinking salvation is not that necessary? When you stand before God and judgment, and all of us will be, what would your response be? Will it be self-justification? Or will it be crisis justification for you? Do not be fooled. Judgment might seem like it is very far away. But when it comes, it is swift and overwhelming, and no one will be able to escape it. 
And so I'm pleading with you this morning, wherever you are, look to Christ. Surrender to Christ. Repent of your sins. Cling to the cross of Christ. And so this is why we end our service with this table. Because at this table, we are reminded of the bloody cross. Jesus' body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. The wrath of God that Jesus faced so that we did not have to face it. And as we eat it and as we drink it, it takes our eye, redirects our eyes from ourselves onto him as we cling to Jesus and who he is and what he's done, as we proclaim his death on our behalf, as we say, his body was broken for me, his blood was shed for me. And in faith, I believe that what Christ has done for me is sufficient. There's nothing to add. I believe there's no more condemnation because I am in Jesus Christ. And so as we hand out these elements, like, like I want you to meditate on Jesus' body uh, that is broken for you, his blood that was shed for you, to cling to that. As you look at your sins, knowing that it's been paid for at the cross, so you can freely confess it, you can surrender, you can turn from it and turn to him. His victory has been decisive. And the complete destruction is coming. Lord, please help us and make yourself known in this. In Jesus' name, amen. As our men and women coming forward to distribute the elements, just use this as a time to reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done. Confess your sins, repent from it, and turn to him in faith. I want you to think about some of the events leading up to the cross and the cross of Christ. The injustice that Jesus faced. The betrayal. The mocking. The brutal beating. The horrendous crimes that was committed. The humiliation that he faced as he was flogged, the crown of thorns that was placed on his head. And he didn't even have strength to carry his own cross up Mount Calvary. And as he was hung up on that cross, the nails piercing his hands and his feet, as he is fighting to stay alive, trying to push himself up, suffocating, drowning in his own blood that filled his lungs. As he watched sinful humanity taunt him, make fun of him, saying he was going to save us, but he can't even save himself. And then Jesus crying out to his father, my father, why have you forsaken me? And then in his dying breath, he says, it is finished. And the cross of Christ gives us a, glimmer, a glimpse 
of the wrath of God that was poured out on his son. You want to know the severity of the wrath of God? Look to the cross. And yet at the same time, Christ displayed his love for us and his love for the Father. And in obedience, he took upon the cross, laid down his life. And so when we eat and when we drink, we are reminded of the hefty penalty that our Lord Savior paid for us. Let us not forget. Let us not make it cheap. Let us not make it a ritual. Let us not just make it a habit. But let us feel the weight of the price that was paid on our behalf as we eat it and we drink it. And so as we take this bread that represents his body that was broken for us, just think about these events, the brutality that he faced as his body was broken for us, and we eat it in remembrance of men. Take it and eat it. As we take this cup that represents his blood, the precious blood of Jesus, as he died for us, as he bled out for us, that covered our sins, that satisfied the wrath of God, that atoned for us. Drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, may we never forget the price that you've paid for us price that it costs to redeem us and to reconcile us and to justify us. Lord, may we be in awe of the cross. Lord, may we take your, ser- your judgment serious, your wrath serious. You will not be mocked. And may it stir in us a sense of urgency, a sense of comfort and joy, but also a sense of fear. May we walk out of here clinging more to you as we recognize our desperate need for you. And without you, there's only death and destruction. There's only wrath and condemnation. We need you, and we can't live without you. So, Lord, please become more real to us and overwhelm us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and worship our Savior King.